Was that coming from my son who has his hat on in church? Today's lecture is about extremists and extremism. My field has always been history. I know very little about science. In 64, there was a presidential election, and a man by the name of Goldwater was running. And I had a, a, a bumper sticker on my car that was AUH2O. Now I already knew what H2O was and I learned that AU was gold. So I doubled my knowledge in that field. <laughs> Who says you can't learn anything from bumper stickers? Goldwater, you'll remember, ran on a theme. And he had a little couplet that he'd gotten from somewhere that, that actually was used against him. And it was, Extreme, extremism in the cause of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the face of evil is no virtue. The problem is, very little in our lives is pure good or pure evil. In fact, this is just about it, pure good. So we're going to talk about some things that we have in common with other stripes or types of dispensationalists. Dispensationalism can be made maddeningly complicated as the dividers can be divided into eight or so divisions, some would even say more. And I guess that's okay if you're talking bologna sandwiches. But the word was written to be understood and followed, not made so convoluted it takes a team of Philadelphia lawyers to interpret it. Einstein famously said, I want a thing made as simple as possible but not simpler. Now what are some of the key tenets that the general family of dispensationalists have in common? And tomorrow we will in detail get into the hyper dispensationalists and the ultra dispensationalists and what I call the regular dispensationalists. We'll take that up. But they have some things in common. And all of them aren't pure good or pure evil. We tend to oversimplify sometimes. If we don't like something that a guy says or a position that he takes, we say, well, he is just an evil person and I don't want anything to do with it and I can't learn anything from them. Well, you might be shutting yourself off for some, from some knowledge. What are these key tenets? And they are in direct opposition to the positions espoused by the mainliners and covenant theologians. First of all, we have in common with them separate tracks for Israel and the church. The technical term 
that Alan just walked all over the top of something I was going to say <laughs> is supersessionism. And you know what that means by now. The mainliners maintain that Israel simply morphed into the church and became spiritual Israel, inheriting the promises not already fulfilled in Roman history. The dispensationalists believe Israel will belatedly realize that they blew it. They will turn to their once rejected Messiah. And when they do that, they will be re-empowered and then regrafted. But all of that chronologically means that there has to be a parenthesis that Alan also mentioned of a grace period or church period that uh, is in vogue today. Now when empowerment comes, the once disconnected remnant will continue their march into eternity with a separate destiny and role from the bride. American culture realizes this. Have you ever heard a song that went dim bones, dim bones, them dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. Them bones, them bones, they're going to, what? Walk around. Now hear the word of the Lord. Everybody knows that. And that's actually correct dispensationalism. God is not through with Israel. They will be regrafted onto the prophetical tree. And because of the initial rejection, he came unto his own and his own received him not, there is this mystery, parenthesis, or apostrophe that was necessitated. And when launched anew, we have an organization called the church, which became an organism, and that, uh, that train is running down the rails but on a separate track from the church. And on into eternity, they both are going to exist. Now, where the boarding station is located is the problem. It's a matter of some consternation, and that's where the dispensationalists get to squabbling among themselves. Where was it located? And we're going to uh, undertake to solve that, or at least explore it, in the last session tomorrow. The covenant crowd lathers up on what they term the Israel of the flesh, ethnic Jews, and the Israel of the spirit, the universal church. And I admit, their arguments are very sound. Unfortunately, however, that's all they are, is sound. That's, that, that's coming on to some of you. All right, good. <laughs> God isn't through with Israel, but Israel is not synonymous with the church either. Then secondly, we have in common progressive revelation. Dispensationalists normally start with the Old Testament and see an unfolding of truth 
which impacts, facilitates, and completes the literal interpretation of the New Testament. The mainliners, by the way, sometimes called the mainstreamers. After I was pastor of the church for a little while in Toledo, we wanted to put a sign in the front yard. And we found out you had to go through a whole rigmarole in order to get a sign in your own front yard of your church. Go downtown and board of men would review and you had to tell them why you wanted it. So I said, well, no problem. We'll go down there and get it then. We went down there and we got some opposition. And uh, I didn't exactly use the right words. Why do you want it? Well, we think it'll facilitate our growth. No, no, that's a terrible reason. We're not accepting that. You had to say, everything's a game. You had to say to somehow provide services for the community and advertise those for the betterment of the community. That was about the third visit I finally hit on that one. <laughs> but there was a rather haughty member of this board who uh, looked out at me from his perch, he was elevated, and said, you, uh, your church is not in the mainstream of Protestant churches, is it? So I put on my ignorant face, which I wear much of the time, and I said, I don't know what you mean. Mainstream? We're in the same stream that Jesus is in, is that all right? No, we didn't get our sign that day. <laughs> but anyway, the mainstreamers normally see less of a literal connection and start anew with the New Testament. Old Testament, they just kind of flush. Which allows or produces less of a burden to explain prophecy or predicted events in a chain that is leading to the end times. They are characteristically preterists when it comes to dealing with Daniel and the Revelation. And thus the mysteries remain a mystery to them because of a non-literal approach to the Bible. The more modern are even deconstructionistic. Well, what is that? Brett is an aficionado of gray threes and Area 51 and all that. Get him going on that and get out of the way. <laughs> and we were playing golf one time, and a friend, uh, a boyhood friend of mine, his son was actually working up in Michigan, and he flew his own plane in to play golf with us. And they got to talking. Well, what did you do before this? And he said, well, I was out at a certain place and all this, Roswell or wherever. And he said, oh, was your job in Area 51? And the kid said, yeah, yeah, it was Area 51. We golfed a little bit more. And he said, hey, are you a reverse engineer? And the guy looked at him and said, yeah, I was a reverse engineer. And Brett said, well, what were you reverse engineering? <laughs> and he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't say another word on it other than he couldn't say. So his father was my best friend, uh, pastoring in Florida, and so later I asked him, what was he working on? 
And his father said he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> so somehow he was sworn to secrecy. But you can reverse engineer theology. And they could reverse engineer until they hit something that they couldn't understand. Then they had to stop. And when they don't understand something, the liberals stop. If they can't logically explain it, they jettison it. They label it fable, non-literal, non-essential. Now, another school, the relativists, believe only the factual is actual. So if you can't prove a thing, then you need to somehow change it or get rid of it. And to be factual, it must be handled or proven. And since some faith is required, the evidence of things not seen, both of these systems preclude a laying hold on truth. And we as conservatives believe you can lay hold, I'm laying hold on truth right now. This is it. They don't think you can do that. Substantively, they don't have the word of God. They might as well be handling a Sears and Roebuck catalog or Mad Magazine. They don't have the Word of God. Dr. Bob Sr. in boyhood said that everybody in his county, with the exception of one man, believed in God and believed the Bible was true. Everybody in the county. Things have changed, haven't they? They differed, however. They divided up over what it meant but whatever it meant, it was true. We're something like that, I think. And then thirdly, the dispensationalists of all stripes have in common an historical grammatical methodology. The dispensationalists believe that a reader of Scripture should endeavor to take the narrative as literal unless that is clearly impossible. And in some cases, it's impossible to take it literally because a literary device is being used. They're even in the Bible. For instance, stones crying out. The stones aren't going to literally start crying. It is an hyperbolic analogy. And anyone that would read that would understand it. Some scripture employs these devices of analogy and hyperbole and symbolism and figurative language. There must, however, never be used as dodges to negate literalism. They're fallback positions. You try to interpret it literally if you possibly can, and if you can't, why then you try to look around and see if they're using a literary device. After the literal approach has been applied, then you can use them. And when coupled with progressive revelation, the tender can be safely then dragged down the track by the engine of inspiration. Nobody wants to be literal about things. I was a witness to someone one time, and 
I said, you must be born again. And he said, that's just your interpretation. I looked at him. I said, I didn't interpret anything. I read it. I just read it. No, that's just your interpretation. What are you going to do with people like that? I was, I guess I golfed too much. I was golfing again one time. <laughs> and I actually ran into a kid from a seminary. He was a hyper-dispensationalist, by the way, but he, he really was crazy. He didn't have any real school of thought. And he said, I know I, I, what you believe. You believe there's some kind of a rapture that's going to take place. And I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, I carry a Bible in my golf bag, so I just reached down, pulled it out, opened it up to Thessalonians, you know, read him a few verses. He said, it didn't say rapture. I said, I know, but it described a rapture. It doesn't say rapture. Therefore, you're wrong, because it doesn't say rapture. What are you going to do with people like that? Another thing in common, a futurist view of the apocalypse. The classical development found in most conservative commentaries and taught in most of the seminaries, universities, institutes, and Bible colleges is something called expectancy. Expectancy. Now, we see today that it would have been difficult to have a rapture, for instance, and some of these things until Israel got back in the nation. And yet all through church history, it seems that this expectancy was taught. Jack Van Empey, some years back, distributed these pens that said, perhaps today, perhaps today. Well, was that true literally throughout all of church history? Now we could argue about that. But we believe in a literal rapture. How many of you, when you were married, carried your bride across the threshold after the nuptials? Nobody carried your bride. Okay, some of you did. Raise your hand. Help me here. Well, that comes from the Bible. The bride will be carried out to a new home. We believe that after that, it'll be followed by tribulation. A few mid-tribbers rattling around, but that's unusual. After that, a second coming, a coming with the saints, and then a marriage supper, and a judgment seat of Christ, and a white throne, an expulsion to splash down in a lake of fire for those that were adjudged guilty. Lake of Fire, where is it located? Somewhere. I don't know, some star in the universe somewhere. Something prepared just for that. My grandfather, I remember, had a, a sermon on the White Throne Judgment, and he very dramatically, he pictured someone being turned away, you know. Guilty, depart. And this poor soul walks off and turns back to the throne and says, but how long, O Lord, how long, how long? Wail on, lost soul, wail on, wail on. And the guy goes a little further and turns around, but I have to know how long, O oh Lord, how long, how long? 
And finally the judge says, till the moon grows old and the sun grows cold and the leaves of the judgment book unfold, till God himself lies withered and cold. Wail on, lost soul. Wail on, wail on, wail on. And I can remember as a kid, chills running up and down my spine. Those poor folks that didn't accept Jesus Christ. And literally, that's what's going to happen. We believe that literally. To a mainliner, a hyper, this is Disneyland theology and approaches, if not achieves, the title of hate literature. There will, I believe, be future pressure to stop even teaching and preaching this Folks are going to hell. Folks are going to land in the lake of fire stuff. I believe I told you yesterday that 45 minutes from where I live, you can't preach on Romans chapter 1. Well, on this side of the Ambassador Bridge, not across the Detroit River into Canada, lies the city of Dearborn, Michigan. Dearborn, Michigan has the highest concentration of Muslims outside of the Middle East. Have you ever watched the series Mission Impossible? It's on when I was a kid. I used to like it. If you are discovered or your mission fails, we will disavow all knowledge of your mission. Well, let me give you a mission, if not impossible, dangerous. I would challenge you, go to Dearborn, Michigan, and street preach. I think you have about a 50-50 chance of getting out alive. Even the police won't enforce the laws in certain parts of Dearborn, Michigan. It is akin, many today, today believe, to middle-aged ignorance or modern voodoo to teach that a beast, dragon, prince, unholy trinity will appear in the future and coalesce and oppress the world but following a literal, futuristic view of the book of the Revelation, boy, it's difficult. Now, Peter Ruckman says it's not hard to understand. People say, oh, you can't understand it. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to believe. Hell will spew out decomposed creatures. A prince on a white horse will ride out of heaven and appear in the sky above the earth and will annihilate millions in the mother of all battles in the valley of Esdraelon that bisects Israel. Blood will gush up five and a half feet high. They're going to try to stop the teaching of that. I'm just here to predict it right now. It's hate literature. But that's the literalistic, futuristic scenario. The evil ruler is variously seen to be a Roman politician. The same folks responsible for 70 A.D., payback time. He will be an Italian, some feel. As close as they could get back years ago was Mussolini. Mussolini was the Antichrist. Last time I saw Mussolini, he was hanging dead. So they misfired there. Well... It's that Russian, you know, with a map on his forehead. That's who it is. He's the Antichrist.
a European politician. Look out for 13 in the European Union. When they hit 13, it's over, brother. A pure Jew, a Syrian Jew. Not only a Syrian Jew, but Judas Iscariot, the coming again of Judas as the Antichrist. And this peace that is temporarily peace and safety, Daniel 8, 25, it is shattered by the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. I mean, that thing, that's quite a picture. That's quite a story. You walk up to a guy on the street and just tell him that if he doesn't have any background, he's going to look at you like you're crazy. Well, is it literal? Is it figurative? Is it future? Is it past? Button, button, who's got the button? Now, reading and applying from Old Testament to New Testament, he will, this Antichrist, although he's not called that specifically in the Bible, will repudiate the God of his fathers, which would include orthodox theology. He's a modern, politically correct thinker. He will be a homosexual or bisexual, no desire for women. He will magnify himself above all gods. Daniel chapter 11. Now those with just their toenails in the camp, they think this is maybe taking this historical grammatical thing a little too far. But most believe it implicitly with every fiber that is in them. If you believe it, you believe literally the revelation scenario, say amen. amen. All opposed, no, better not be. <laughs> There was a teacher at Baptist Bible College that said this in a class, I'm glad the King James people are around, which meant he wasn't one of them, because they would literally die for every single word in a King James Bible. And my thought was, would you? Would your crowd? And the answer is, no, they would not. How do I know that? Because they remove words out of it willy-nilly. That's how I know that. To the average mainline pastor, to superimpose this nonsense on the landscape of the 21st century is fodder for comedians. Bill Maher, for instance, says, I consider Christianity to be a form of insanity. To believe it literally and teach it as prophecy that will take place makes one a member of the lunatic fringe to these folks. Well, let's move on. What else do we have in common as dispensationalists? Judeophilia. Judeophilia. The aforementioned train of prophetic events is baked into our culture. Even the unsaved. Why a half century of Bible teaching, a century and a half really, of preaching, of publishing, they just accept it and they know something about it. 
I'm talking about movies. You know, these dozen or so bargain basement Christian films that you used to see when you were in the young people's department. They would rent those things and show them. Terrible, grainy. Cost about $15 to make. <laughs> Prophecy conferences. Larkin's chart. I've seen those things dozens of times. Blown up and plastered to the front wall of churches. Verse by verse expositions of end time events told by and taught by hundreds of thousands of pastors and local churches over more than a hundred years. Kevin Phillips and Richard Allen Green contend that the gospel or the general belief in the revelation scenario has affected the foreign policy of the United States. And they prove pretty much conclusively that the Bible and the Revelation scenario was used by the Bush administration to help justify the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And under Ronald Reagan, there was a Secretary of the Interior by the name of Watt who was visiting Springfield, Missouri. He was over at the Assembly headquarters. Springfield is Jerusalem of the Assemblies of God. And he was over there and he was talking to some of the officials and they were I forget, talking about something, but he made the remark, if the Lord doesn't come back first. A reporter heard it, wrote about it. It hit the national news with the general idea being, what kind of fruit loops do we have running our government? They believe actually that Jesus Christ, dead nearly 2,000 years, is coming back. The former Attorney General of the United States, John Ashcroft. He was an assembly person, his dad an assembly's preacher. He, uh, he was actually almost a member of our Sunday school class at High Street Baptist Church. He used to visit there quite a bit and come into the young adult class. He was ushered out of Washington by the Republican establishment, the neocons, prematurely for allowing his, now this is, I'm alleging this, this is what the rumor was, but everybody believed it, for allowing his literal interpretation of the Bible to influence his decisions as Attorney General. You remember when the scuds were falling on Israel and everybody got excited? The American batteries of Patriot missiles were shooting them down, shooting them out of the sky. The average on-the-street American considered this, we're defending Bible prophecy, we're defending God's chosen people, and we have a moral obligation to do that because we're actually on God's side when we're doing it. Now, even the Covenant boys briefly had a few restive reflections. You know, maybe the dispensationalists are right. Things sure seem to be happening that were predicted in the Bible. Now, two weeks later, they didn't believe that, but for a while they did. 
this past few weeks, some of the Republican candidates, I've lost track, they drop out so fast, there are four left. They have practically gone into a breast-beating frenzy trying to out-Israel each other. The nation of Israel is considered by some to be virtually the 51st state of the United States. And Netanyahu has become a Christian hero. Why? Due to a futuristic interpretation of the chronology of the Bible, which to conservative Christians is parallel to the Constitution of the United States. Those two. They are the authority. Do you remember the 88 reasons in 88 that the Lord was going to come back? 250,000 copies were mailed out. Virtually every preacher, pastor in the country got a copy, which set off wild debates. It hit the national news as the time predicted drew near. Even just non-Christians were getting into the argument and getting upset. Many folks were scared spitless because it had never been presented really as an impending thing that was really, really going to happen. Not even the possibility. I remember my mother in Sunday school all her life, Christian since she was a little girl, hardly missed a Sunday ever. She came to me and said, you think it's going to happen? I said, well, why? You? Yeah, it's going to happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen on that date. And she said, well, I don't know. I'm scared. And I said, why? Because I've got acrophobia, and I don't like the thought of flying through the air. <laughs> I thought, my stars. I went over to pick up Brett when he was in high school at Emmanuel, Emmanuel Baptist in uh, Toledo. And a woman approached me in a frenzy. She said, I've got two things I want to discuss with you. I'm sitting outside in, in my car. It's a convertible. She said, the first thing I want to say to you is, I've been watching you come and pick your son up every day, and if you're a pastor, I don't think you should be driving that car. Now, when I came from Springfield to Toledo, I came in a 67 Corvette convertible air roadster. Goodwood Green. That was a fantastic car. But I did get some criticism for it. It was an unspiritual car. <laughs> so she said, I don't think you should be driving it. That is not a pastoral car. I said, okay, what else you got? <laughs> and then she said, secondly, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? I was tempted to say, well, if it does, lady, you can have the car, okay? <laughs> I did say, don't plan on the Antichrist paying your gas bill. 
you're going to wake up next week and find that you still owe it and you're still here. Another man called me about 15 minutes before it was supposed to happen. They had it all figured out to the minute. And he called me. I was in an apartment, living in an apartment at that time. I knew it wasn't going to happen. At least I was 98% sure it wasn't going to happen. And I got this wild idea. Why don't I just kind of string him along for about 13 minutes here? (laughs) And then get him to say the sinner's prayer. And I, in heaven forever, would have the distinction of being the one that won the last soul during the (laughs) church age. (laughs) I told you I dismissed it. I, I didn't do that. Judeophilia, Christian Zionism. It is our mission to get them back and then protect them when they get back. A lot of folks feel that way. A large percentage of dispensationalists see it as a doctrinal imperative and passionately embrace it. I'm going to move along here quickly. I know lunch is coming. The next one is incorporation of the Old Testament covenants. What do you do with them? Those promises made in the Old Testament, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, they will be satisfied within the framework of the correctly ferreted divisions. We may be unsure or contentious among ourselves, but most dispensationalists believe that somehow these covenant promises to Israel will be carried out, will be kept. Dispensationalism is the umbrella concept that covers a multitude of theological sins. It also makes some strange bedfellows. Number seven in my outline, I skipped one, I think, too long, but number seven, a lack of tolerance for any deviation. Even the slightest deviation within the same camps Fundamentalists and conservatives are famous for their intolerance. That can be good. There are some things you shouldn't have any tolerance for, and that can be bad. A lack of tolerance. What do you do, for instance, with some of the Old Testament covenant overlappers, like Peter and Paul? Where do you put them? What do you do with those boys? Were they born again? When were they born again? Can some of the writings of some of these more Jewish apostles be ignored because it's in the wrong period? Nuances of difference in the speed of the transition, especially in the book of Acts, can lead to charges of heresy and disfellowship. I had to read reams and reams and reams of stuff. I grabbed everything that I could get my hands on in preparation for this meeting. And there were some strange positions being taken. My wife had a stack this high of Wikipedia stuff that I waded through. And I was reading one of these fellows 
And I had before me a booklet that I'd gotten from Brett, Peter Ruckman's on hyperdispensationalism. So I'm reading along, and this guy says that Peter Ruckman is a hyperdispensationalist. And I thought, what in the world? He wrote the book against it. What is he talking about? Well, it went on to explain he believes in dispensational salvation. He believes in the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. He believes that the theme of the Bible is the second coming of Jesus Christ or who's ruling and when are they ruling. Now, I will admit that most folks will say the theme of the Bible is the cross. Now, individually, that's the most important thing. There may be an overall plan out there, but where I'm going to be when it takes place is pretty important to me. So that's the most important thing personally, individually. But the cross is a recruitment effort for the all-sweeping staffing of an administration to worship the Almighty and then help the Almighty rule the universe in the eternal economy. That's what he teaches. So that makes him, I guess, a hyper-dispensationalist. And he says there is ten times more about the second advent than there is the first in the Bible. We'll discuss some of that maybe tomorrow. Now I realize that everything in here is important. If it wasn't important, it wouldn't be in here. It's important. But what you do with it when it's in here, that's important too. And we need to develop the spiritual sixth sense to differentiate between a major and a minor. Now that's where fundamentalist conservatives have a problem. What is major and what is minor? Yeah, but there's nothing minor. Well, I understand that. But that takes some context, doesn't it? You know, I think some of this uh, stuff about non-compromise is just stubbornness and meanness. And when it touches an irreducible minimum, that's when you get excited. There are certain, certain things in here that you can't mess with at all, or you get into heresy. Something like drawing lines in the dispensational debate. Oh, yeah, it's comp complicated at times. My wife's saying, what's taking you so long? It's complicated. It takes me so long to get to the bottom of this. I'm a slow thinker anyway. As the king of Siam says, what did he say? It's a puzzlement. It's a puzzlement. Some of this dispensational stuff is a puzzlement. I close with the illustration of the man on the bridge. There was a man who climbed up to the top of a bridge and he's going to commit suicide. Crowd gathers down below, the police are there. A Baptist pastor drives up. He sees it, gets out of the car, and he says, I'm a pastor, can I help? And the cop says, yeah, we're trying to talk this guy down. What do you think you can do? He said, well, I'll give it a shot. And so he yells up to this guy, hey, you up there, are you a Christian? The guy yells down, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, what kind of a Christian are you? He yells up at him. Are you a Bible-believing Christian? The guy yells down, yes, I'm a Bible believer. 
Well, what kind of a Bible believer are you? He yells down, Baptist. Oh, well, what kind of a Baptist are you? He says, a fundamentalist type of Baptist. The guy yells, that is great because I am a fundamentalist Baptist preacher. Are you in a group? Are you conservative or Baptist Bible Fellowship or World or Southwide? Are you garb? What are you? And the guy yells down, Baptist Bible Fellowship. He says, great, I too am a Baptist Bible Fellowship preacher. Are you KJV or NIV or ESV or something else? What are you? I am KJVO, King James Bible only, man. Great, because I'm a King Jameser too. We are brothers. Are you a dispensationalist? Yes, I am a dispensationalist. Are you an Acts 2 dispensationalist? Absolutely, I'm an Acts 2 dispensationalist. Oh, I love you, my brother. Please don't commit suicide. One more question. Are you close communion or closed communion? And the answer was close communion. Jump, heretic! The brethren are famous for circular firing squads, church splits, and shooting their wounded. May we in this camp show a little more discernment.